everyone, this is Viv, and you're listening to the What Gives Podcast. So today, I'll be talking to April Walker from the Vocational Guidance Services. We both have our roots in the Chicago Women in Philanthropy, so that's pretty exciting. And when we met, we really connected on humanizing our work in the field of nonprofit and her passion for racial equity. And I'm just incredibly grateful and impressed with your work and VGS. And I believe VGS has the type of solution that would change a lot of things in society today, mostly where unemployment is still affecting the same marginalized and diverse groups more significantly. And so I'm happy to have you on our podcast and be able to talk about it. So welcome, April. Thank you so much for having me. Great introduction. Appreciate it. (laughs) Love it. So can you tell me more about the problem that VGS is trying to solve here and kind of the approach and impact that y'all have? Sure. So I would say the problem is is really threefold, right? We're a social service organization that supports people with disabilities. The first way that we do that is helping them find jobs. So that's everything from resume creation, interview support, job training, and then job coaching, which is where you actually have someone with you while you're performing job duties to sort of help you along and provide that accommodation. There's also this arm where we help businesses. So if businesses have custodial needs or manufacturing needs, assembly needs, then we provide the employees to do that work. You know, pre-pandemic, we had a partnership with the local bank where our employees would go in and scan paperwork. And that was a job this bank could not keep full. There was just incredible turnover. And we had the employees that were able to do that and do that at a really high level. And then the last way that I say we provide programming and the problem we're trying to solve is to think about what do people with disabilities do, those that can't work, because not everybody is going to enter the workforce. So we provide day programming for people that have really significant disabilities. And the idea there is that they should still be able to engage and interact in their community. We've seen some changes in what we can do. We're all a little bit isolated because of this pandemic. So we're doing things now like virtual Tai Chi um, because we can't be in large congregate settings. Right. Um, So we've seen some innovation, but it definitely is a there's a sadness as well where you can't go into a facility and see all of your friends and kind of hop around from room to room and do shared activities because everybody has to have their own because we want to stop the spread of the virus. So the problem is threefold. It's really helping employers diversify their workforce and access and get individuals with disabilities to work for them. It's helping people with disabilities get jobs and then it's helping people with disabilities engage in the community. Can you tell me more about the population that y'all serve? What kind of groups are y'all talking to? Yeah, so I would say primarily it's what we call IDD, so intellectual and developmental disabilities. So that's everything from a learning disability to Down syndrome, vision impairment, if you're on the autism spectrum or have autism spectrum disorder, if you suffer from hearing loss or speech and language challenges, if you serve all of those things. There's also this delineation, right, if you have an acquired disability, so a disability that you got, say, by virtue of an accident that you were in or an illness that left you impaired in some sort of way and then disabilities that you were born with, maybe perhaps a spinal cord injury or you've had to have something amputated. So we serve the whole range of physical and intellectual and developmental disabilities. Can you tell me more about the people that kind of inspired this mission? How did how did VGS come about? Who was it originally for? We're really old, which I love. We're 131 years old. It was actually founded by a group of young women in 1890 who wanted to help children who were bed bound in a local hospital. And so they did some sewing projects and had like a little bazaar where they sold things and wanted to lift their spirits of these children in, in the hospital. 
And that grew and grew and grew. It actually led them to open up a school for children with disabilities. And so we're talking about like 1907, right? At this school, though, what I love is that they accepted kids with disabilities regardless of color, creed, or nationality. This is 50-something years before Brown v. Board, right? And there's this little school near Cleveland, Ohio, that's helping children with disabilities, regardless if you're black, brown, or otherwise. These ladies are ahead of their time. <laughs> exactly. So I'm like, kudos to you. From there, it expanded and grew to serve adults. And then it really became honed in on kind of employment services and vocational rehabilitation. And that's where we find ourselves today. But I love the story of where we came from. The Sunbeam Board is actually what they were called of the Sunbeam Sewing Circle. And we still have our Sunbeam volunteers every year. They do some fundraising for us. And we're incredibly grateful for their leadership because that legacy is, is huge. That is such an amazing story. And it wasn't always called VGS, No, right? no. So it was the Sunbeam Circle, and then it was the School for Crippled Children. And the thing about sort of being in disability services is that we've come a long way with our language. So we would not use a lot of the language that they were using back when I have some of these pictures. A school for handicapped children, whatever was appropriate for the time, is no longer appropriate for us now, right? We've just learned quite a bit, a lot about how to be more respectful with the language that we use. But at some point, there were some mergers with other agencies, especially as they expanded into doing adult services, and it became vocational guidance services a few few decades back. Yeah. I think a lot of people do still struggle with how to say things. Can you walk me through some of that? Sure. And it's a really easy one to get wrong. I'll say I've been doing this for a year and a half or three years technically at the agency and you really have to commit yourself to it. I'm someone that came in and I thought it was okay to say able-bodied person. You shouldn't actually say that. You should say non-disabled persons. You should say a person with a disability. So you are not viv, <laughs> development, <laughs> developmentally disabled viv who has a developmental disability also works at the supermarket. Um, so you are a person, you're not your diagnosis, you are not, if you're confined to a wheelchair, you don't identify the person by that. And so I would say the safest language for everyone to adopt is that you have a person with a disability and you have non-disabled people. I'm a non-disabled person. <laughs> oh my gosh. I think at the beginning of this recording, I did say able body. So <laughs> I'm not sure if I did, but I think I did. And if so, I am so glad that you We are learning there. together. <laughs> <laughs> we are learning together. And it's probably like a newer change, I promise you. It's, it's evolving, and the ADA and a couple other sources put out uh, their recommendations for what things should be. So, Can you tell me more about the unemployment barriers that affect your population? For sure. So barriers to employment are actually a lot more wide-reaching in scope than we would think. So it can be everything from educational attainment. If you didn't attend high school, if you never secured a GED, those are barriers to employment. It's also if you can't cover the cost of childcare, or if you can't access transportation to get to work. So it could be great that you land a job, but if you can't afford to get there every day, or if it's not safe for your family um, that you do leave every day, if you have children who are young and no one to provide that childcare at, at an affordable rate, then that's a barrier to employment. When we think about disabilities, it can refer to whether or not a building itself is accessible, if there's a, weird, a wheelchair ramp, if the light switches can be manually flicked or if they come on automatically. It extends to what type of training is provided. So maybe you have someone who is capable of doing the work, but they don't have the soft skills or they need a lot more coaching to, to resolve conflict or advocate for themselves in a work environment. 
It could also be assistive technology. So we don't think about the fact sometimes there are computers that will read to you and certain keyboards that will fit for certain disabilities or disorders. I certainly haven't thought about those things. It's a privilege that we have as non-disabled persons um, and not all disabilities are even visible. So if you do require an accommodation, it can be challenging to find an environment that matches your skills, is accessible, an employer that is able to make those accommodations for you. How many of us can say that we've had a coworker that uses a white cane or an employer that has sign language interpreters readily available. I mean, these are just things that we don't think about and employers often don't think about it either, which is why we're a nice bridge to sort of help educate and inform them some of the things that they can do. And we can keep those people on our staff while also integrating them into their work environment, like the bank example that I provided earlier. Do y'all do anything like integrating or helping employers integrate technology that helps the population? You know, Not as much as I think we would like to. I think part of the barrier there, if I'm not mistaken, is that the the technology follows the person, right? So say whatever referral source you come from, if I have this correctly, you may get a wheelchair, you might get a certain keyboard or a certain piece of equipment, but then that's technically yours. And so for us to invest in some of those things, it hasn't been something I think we've been able to do longer term, but there are strategies and resources out there to make technology much much more accessible for people that have disabilities. Yeah, I know some new age companies are starting to give stipends to employees to set up their workspace in a way that's comfortable for them. And I I wish that every company did this and for a wider range of different work accommodations. I I would love to sort of, if someone wants to do a case study out there and (laughs) look at what the work from home stipends were pre-2020 and what they are now when there's no end in sight. Yeah, I feel like employment and unemployment looks so different nowadays. And even though it affects everybody in their own way, it's, it's crazy how it affects marginalized communities. That's a great point because I think, so my background is in social service administration uh, from the University of Chicago and a BA in sociology. And I think I've always been interested in the aggregate, right? And groups of people and how society can just be better. I think I'm always trying to answer that question. How can we be better? And these unemployment numbers pre-pandemic were just something we took as truth. So if you were disabled, if you have a disability, there I go slipping up, you're 40 or 50% more likely to be unemployed. And if you are employed, you're likely to be paid 30% less. They're less likely to be unemployed and then you get the job and you're not getting a, a, a wage or a rate or a salary that will allow you to live, you know, the life that you want to live. And that's really disappointing. And we can do something about that. We've been tracking this data forever and the strides to sort of improve it are so slow. I think the other thing that people may be should take stock of is the fact that the ADA, so the American Disabilities Act, was only signed 30 years ago. So if we think that this piece of legislation sort of changed and improved everything, it did not. It falls short and we have to sort of stay on it so that we can reform it. And it takes all of us to sort of be mindful of that. The last piece that I would offer too is about unemployment in general. The question I would love to hear more people asking is what's, who's not captured in that, right? So in unemployment, we don't capture people that have had their hours reduced. It's a huge difference if you go from working 40 hours a week to 15, but that's not captured in that rate. We don't capture full-time versus part-time. If you're not making enough to live, then you're not, you're not making enough. And we also don't capture low-paying jobs. So we have to think about the people that aren't even included in that number. It's a helpful metric for sure, 
to give us part of the story, but it's only part of the story. And you're right that there are these compounding things. If you add a disability, if you add another sort of marginalized identity, then it's your your likelihood of success is really just going to go down. So be mindful of what the metrics are and are not telling us. You know, you got me thinking about like another population that might not even be measured and it's undocumented people and people who work, you know, under the table, undocumented jobs, but that that was how they made a living. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a nice start, but I learned of that by virtue of this job. I would just sort of take the unemployment rate before and say, oh, okay, that's, that's a great sort of way to know how many people are unemployed. It's really just a fraction. And there are people that want to work, right? I don't know how you feel about receiving your paycheck <laughs> every two <laughs> weeks or every week or the 15th and the 30th, but I like it. I like it a lot. And I don't think we're unique in that. And so giving someone the chance to um, experience that, experience that dignity of work, of contributing to their community uh, is, is huge. It's hugely important. And we have board members that have shared similar stories that what their why for participating on the board and serving as a volunteer is because they remember what it felt like to get that first paycheck. Wow. It's like, okay, this, this means something. And that's what we do. That's what we continue to try and foster. Yeah. Can you tell me more about your why or some of the why stories that you've heard from BGS? Yeah. So I can make it a little twofold. My why is, is largely related to racial equity. Um, I had a, a colleague, and I won't share names or employers, but she shared a story with me that was talking about how she was going out to um, work with an employer in a certain part of the state of Ohio, and they had a great sort of partnership going. The employees that we offered were doing well and thriving, and he said to her, serious, not off-the-hand comment, hey, can you get us some more of those autistic black guys to work here? Whew. Yikes. So that says to me that just because we have partners doesn't mean there's a value alignment. Mm -hmm. Just because we can do this work and see measures of success doesn't mean that we've changed minds. And I'm really committed to changing minds. Like, I need you to know. <laughs> I need you to know why this matters. And so my why is really advocating for other people. I think, too, with fundraising, we have the privilege, sometimes a burden, but largely a privilege to talk to all of these different groups and sort of relay messages that might otherwise get lost in translation. So if we have the ear of a major donor and we also have the ear of the program staff, then we, we are the go-between and it's my responsibility and it just feels like it's the thing that I can do the best to make sure that everyone knows <laughs> what our reality is. And what we saw in 2020 were donors and funders really coming to the table wanting to understand that and saying, hey, you know what? We don't actually need to restrict the money that you're getting. Do whatever you want because we trust you. Um, we trust you to do well by your mission and the people that you're serving. And I love seeing that kind of evolution. Um, you have the right to fund in the way that you want to you know, do your grant making, but you should also be, be asking yourself, are you maintaining the status quo by doing that? I, I did just watch a webinar on how to decentralize wealth or decolonize mm. wealth in terms of philanthropy because the philanthropic space is still run by the people who fund it and it really it shouldn't be that way so I love that you brought up that point I think that's a conversation and an industry shift that needs to happen more often yeah I could not I, I'm sorry I could not I just couldn't agree more I think it's <laughs> it's it's a power dynamic that we have to attend to right and so if you're holding the purse strings and you yourself have not reckoned with some of these big questions but you're looking at grantees who are desperate right for dollars in a lot of cases then you have to be mindful that you might not get the whole story. 
because we're trying to keep programming going. We want to sort of serve everybody we can, but you can let us breathe in that space and really think about things strategically in a different way if you come to the table with that same heart behind it. You know, there's another movement, community-centric fundraising, that puts, you know, there's this theory, right? If you're a donor and you want to give, I think this is the way I heard it described, you want to give some bread to ducks in a pond, then that's great, and you can feel really good about that. But community-centric fundraising forces you to reckon with, you're also in this pond with us. You're, you might be on the edge, you might be trying to hop out, but you're, you're in the same space that we occupy, even if you had to drive to a neighborhood you've never been to before. This is still part of <laughs> the realm that you exist in. And so I'm really grateful for movements and conversations like that, that ask donors to think about, where'd your money come from? So I do want to hear more about VGS's approach and commitment to racial equity and the way that you're talking to your funders. For VGS, this approach is evolving. For me personally, not so much, but for the organization, yes. And I think we're not unlike a lot of nonprofits, right, that have been thrust into this moment by virtue of the events of 2020, watching George Floyd murdered right before our eyes. He's one of many that we've witnessed. Um, and so our approach has to take into account if we're serving people with disabilities and those people are also Black, are we doing the best that we can do by them? And so if we know there are widely documented reports and data collection that if you whiten your resume, you're 25% more likely to get a call back. So April is not a very telling name. Neither is my last name, quite frankly. I'm probably racially ambiguous in that part. Not when you see me, but my name. But if my name was Lakeisha versus Becky, and Lakeisha and Becky apply for the same job, same education, same affiliation, same skills, Becky is 25% more likely to get the call back. And then if you sprinkle on the fact that Lakeisha has a visible disability or a physical disability, what's happening there? And are we talking about that? So I think we really have this opportunity to acknowledge how these things are compounding and also acknowledge for our employer partners the job opportunities that are available. Sitting with the truth that there is absolute dignity in custodial work and building maintenance, but not everybody sees it like that. And so how people are treated by others that they encounter, we have to also make sure that we're training and supporting people in that. I think it's really important. So our approach really has to be looking at the, the people, the training, the environments we're sending them into. I know when I um, moved to Cleveland, I'm not originally from here, I was placed at my now employer as a consultant by my old employer, long story. But the first thing that I thought of when my employer told me I was assigned to Cleveland was about Tamir Rice. I mean, it was the only connection point that I had was to think about this young black boy that I knew had been shot by a police officer. I mean, and a neighbor who had called on him. And so I'm having this internal experience like, oh, God, Cleveland, like, what am I supposed to expect there? And my employer is just rattling on about, and you'll be doing this, and this is going to be where you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm in a whole different zone. And so we have to know that our the people that we're helping place in jobs and, and serving experience the same thing. I had a, another colleague share a story with me. He was going for an interview at a Rite Aid or some sort of local store in a different uh, part of the county. And he said he circled the building four times just to make sure it was safe for him to go in because he wasn't sure. He didn't see anybody that looked like him. So he didn't know if he should get out of his car to go in for this interview. Now he showed up, he wants the job, he wants the interview, but am I safe here? 
is this okay for me to be here? And she tells him, you know, yes, the person you're interviewing with looks like you. I know it, it feels it feels maybe uncomfortable, but yes, it's okay. But some of those things we can't account for. And so making sure our staff are equipped to have those conversations, making sure employers are able to have those conversations. And when they're, and when they're not, you know, when they're asking us for more black disabled autistic boys or whatever the case, making sure that we broach that accordingly. So I would offer, offer that. Yeah, how do you start to have those conversations or how do you give resource to some of those employers? For me, I think I've identified that it's really a value alignment that we're seeking. And we still live in a capitalist society. Everyone wants to make money. But the people that are doing the work, our direct service providers, our business engagement specialists, they get it. They get it. So for me, it's equipping them to have these conversations and that they feel safe bringing these truths back. Because the reality is that maybe we shouldn't partner with everybody. So it requires clarity as a leadership team to say, these are the, this is what we will do. This is what we will partner with. And these will be the consequences if we learn of something that an employer chooses to not rectify. And that's their MO, that they can operate their business however. But if we can take a stand and say, this is how we understand people should be treated. And we believe this and we expect nothing less and lead by example. There, there are lots of reports and it's almost very much aligned with the way that we have to kind of give the business case for diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Like, if you do this, then you'll be more efficient and it's going to be a great thing for your business. Okay. But the same things happen for people with disabilities. They have to, they try and prove that, um, well, they're this much more efficient and they actually bring this kind of energy and spirit to the team. Those things that are kind of hard to quantify because you have to make this case. You know, sometimes it won't be the value. Sometimes it will be leading by... (laughs) leading by the truth and then hopefully the value will come later so i just saw on linkedin a course on how to make a csr business case to your employer and i find myself asking these questions also Mm -hmm. i want to know how much this helps the bottom line Mm -hmm. because in my heart i believe that like the right things will help the bottom line but so what if it doesn't I have a friend who's um, a lawyer and she ended up in a similar situation uh, with her firm speaking specifically about police brutality and ultimately left the firm because she just knew that they, I think they asked her to write a piece on it and then they felt so strongly of a dissenting viewpoint and then didn't publish the piece, which is incredibly frustrating. But it's almost like I've exhausted myself of defending my own humanity, but I still have a lot of gumption for other people and so I'm grateful for that. I think that certainly is what keeps me moving forward. It's the, the storytelling and the educating. So honestly, sometimes I know what the other side thinks is, is helpful because we have to we have to look at the small measures of success along the way. It's it's just that reality for us in fundraising and philanthropy, especially when the field is changing right before our eyes, right? We're at this moment where it's it was okay to make a statement, you know, whether you posted a black square or you posted the statement of allyship. And then who's holding you accountable for your action? You, you weren't doing anything before, but you j- jumped on the bandwagon of saying whatever you felt so strongly about to say when our country was on fire. And now what? So how do you hold yourself accountable is, is going to be really key in, in the coming months because we have a lot of work to do. We have so much work to do. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think we have a lot of opportunities to move the needle and if i look at the agency that we serve you know you don't stick around for a hundred agency that we are you don't stick around for 130 years by not knowing how to do something 
we've gotten we've gotten this thing down and so when it comes to advocating for people with disabilities and understanding the needs of each of our um, referral partners and really communicating with businesses. I know some of the challenges that we're having, um, employers don't have as much bandwidth right now to expand their own workforce. Our business engagement specialists, whereas they could have walked down the street previously to talk to the manager of a market or gone to a hotel chain and offered a sort of training program or offered to do a job fair, we're really limited in, in our ability to do some of that. And employers are facing their own constraints as they try and project what this year ahead will be, right? There are a lot of unknowns. And so as some of that shifts from underneath us and is still evolving, we have to be really kind of adaptable. And that is something I'm confident that our organization does well. Again, no mistake that we've been around for 130 years. Um, and so I'm looking forward to us kind of continuing to adapt to this moment and learning from the job market, but also being leaders in in this advocacy piece because I don't hear enough people giving voice to how people with disabilities experience the workforce, what it means that you um, have a disability and are cleaning, you know, a local hospital. That's amazing. We have a funder who was really happy to support us last year because they, they've seen our employees in action or they've seen our programs in action and they just felt like they needed to go out of their way. To, it was unsolicited, go out of their way to just let us know that they were thinking about us. And so as we figure out ways to have people sort of see our mission and connect with us because you can't come to the building anymore, um, I do trust that there's a way for us to get the message out there and tell the story in a really comprehensive way. So what does a society with full access look like to you? Yeah, I love this question. It made me think about, um, there's a quote by Audre Lorde that I loved, that I love, still love, not past tense, says, if I didn't define myself for myself, I would be crunched into other people's fantasies for me and eaten alive. And for me, and for most every fundraiser that I want to be associated with, I think that's the crux of it is that we are pressing ahead towards this more equitable world and employment is key in that. How you have the ability to earn a living <laughs> and what kind of work you get the chance to do, it's huge. So whereas a society that doesn't limit you based off of your disability, your gender, your race, it doesn't relegate you to what you can become. We know so much of what's important for children and adults, but children especially, is modeling. So if you don't see something, if you don't see a black dentist, if you don't see an Asian teacher, if you don't see a Muslim hairdresser, then you can't even begin to imagine yourself in some of these vocations. But we, we can do something <laughs> about that. And so for me, full access to employment really looks like the equitable world that I, I want to live in and that I believe we'll get closer to throughout my lifetime, um, where it is a expectation, if not requirement, that your interviews will be accessible, that your applications will be accessible, that your job training will be um, accommodating. But a society with full access to employment or full access in general is one in which we're living out the spirit of what Audre Lorde says, and, and we don't limit each other to what uh, we can do. Yeah, yeah. And I love our conversation so far. I'm learning so much. I, things I, I, sadly, I have never thought about before. And it's things that affect me. Like I, me being unemployed for even a couple months, I was 
not having a good time. But I love you relating it to your own experience because if you even think about, I've had a lot of jobs. I started working when I was 14. I've always liked money. So I've just, I've worked at dry cleaners. I've worked in retail, babysitting. Like I've just always been working. And some of the jobs I've loved, some of them I have hated. And they're along the way, of course, though, things that I've taken for granted. And so I've had to reckon with that, you know, you absolutely take for granted that you can show up and you don't need a certain accommodation or you don't need to think about if your your coworkers or colleagues are, are going to understand or you have to make a decision about whether or not to disclose your disability. Um, so I definitely see it as a responsibility to sort of help others. And, and we have, you know, a variety of people represented here and disabilities represented here. And so it's just like an opportunity to learn all the time. Um, and when we had to furlough folks because of the pandemic, it was really hard. You know, we had a situation at the beginning of 2020 where we had to furlough over 600 people. It's horrible because everyone keeps showing up. So that means you want to be here. And then there's something that's outside of everybody's control and we can't be together. So you definitely I just love you sharing, you know, when you think about your own work trajectory and the type of environments you want to be in. Yeah, it's some food for thought for sure. And I think just the pandemic has affected everyone, and I hope that we all come out a little bit more empathetic for each other. Um, For listeners at home, and for myself included, what can I do and what can listeners do to advance this overall mission, and also any way that we can help VGS? For sure. A great place to start is always with educating yourself. Do some homework first. I think the ADA is a great piece of legislation to start with. Just figure out what it does. You know, something that was passed in 1990 is not all that old. The same with the Civil Rights Act that was just a couple decades before it. And so we like simple narratives that celebrate what we want to see is progress, but we often forget that we have to see those things through. So that piece of paper didn't change the fact that some buildings that we occupy are really old and really hard to make accessible. So how do we reckon with that? So the first thing you can do is sort of a Google search. Educate yourself if there are employers near you um, or nonprofits that do vocational habilitation. Check them out. Understand what they do. And the same for us. And if there are employers that you see hiring people with disabilities, support them, celebrate them, let them know how much that matters to you as a customer. I mean, because we are a capitalist society, that that's really (laughs) what's going to have some major leverage. I saw a great post on LinkedIn. This was not at all associated with our organization, but it was a dad celebrating his son, who I think has worked at Publix for four years and he has autism or is on the spectrum. Oh my gosh, I saw the same post. Did you share it? I don't know. Wasn't it? I, I liked it. So maybe that's how it came across. But I was so touched by that. I was just like, what a compelling narrative. Um, there is not even a Publix near me. But the next time I go south, <laughs> like I will shop at Publix because I just appreciate that he is spreading the word about that and advocating. So you'll you'll know sometimes or you won't or you can ask a place that you do shop, you know, hey, what's your what's your policy here? What are you doing for accessibility? Have you thought about that? Or I know somebody with a disability. I'm wondering if you would be interested in interviewing them. So figure out where you have some leverage and, and start to utilize that to insert yourself into the conversation. And then again, the piece that I would echo from earlier, keep in mind what the, the numbers are not telling us, who we're not capturing in a lot of that data because unemployment is a very complicated story, especially if you are black and disabled. The other intersection for for that with me is of course with racial equity and police brutality because the conversation we don't have enough within that movement is the extent to which 
black people who were brutalized by the police often have some type of disability. They have often been diagnosed as bipolar or having an intellectual disability. And so if you're calling the police for help for your child who's uh, autistic and they show up and shoot him, that's a disability conversation, just like it's a racial equity conversation. So look at some of those intersections, look at some legislation, figure out if you can advocate or talk to an employer or get yourself involved some way, somehow, or reach out to me and I'm happy to chat. Well, thank you so much. Um, is there anywhere that we can find you, find VGS? Sure. So you can find VGS at vgsjob.org on the internet, and you can find me on LinkedIn, just April Walker, nice and simple. I'm the one with the the large hair and the, the bright smile, hopefully Viv can attest. So yeah, that's where you can find me for now. Well, thank you so much, April. I feel like you have a lot of wisdom to share, and I've learned so much from you. So I can't be more grateful. Well, thank you. Thank you for your podcast. Thank you for helping use your platform and spreading the word. And I will be in Chicago sooner than later. You know, keep up the great work with what you're doing and with CWIP. And hopefully we will be able to meet in person and hug it out soon. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with your friends. For more information, head to our website at whatgivesproject.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode.